Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, as we continue our study of looking through the Lord, I mean, through this uh, prodigal son. What are we looking at? The story of the prodigal son. It's on vacation last week. Takes me a while to get back into it. Uh, But we uh, come this morning to our fourth week in this study of the prodigal son in Luke 15. We'll be looking primarily at verses 17 through 20. If you were to read throughout the Bible, starting at the beginning and go all the way to the end, there is a word you would certainly notice. It would not be an unfamiliar word to any of you. You have certainly, at some point in your life, heard this little six-letter word. And you would know, as you read through the Bible, that this word seems to be important. You would certainly catch that from the New Testament, but you would also catch it from the Old Testament. You would see that this is not some obscure or peripheral word. No, it's, it's actually a primary word, and it is always given in the form of a, of a command. And you would feel the weight of this command. Every time that it is given, you would have to realize that this command matters and has some implication, whether you understand it or not, for every one of us. As you got to the New Testament, you would find that this was the first command of Jesus. And you could take this one six-little word and summarize the entire preaching ministry of Jesus with it. You could even look a little bit before that and find that the entire preaching ministry of, of John before Jesus came could be summarized in this word. And then you could read beyond that and see that when Jesus was about to ascend and finished his ministry, the last thing he said to his disciples is, I want this word to be what you're all about. I want you to preach this word. And then you would go to the book of Acts, and lest you think that this was just for the time of Jesus, you would see that when Peter gets done preaching after the Holy Spirit came and thousands of people were asking the question, well, then what should we do? His answer is this one six-letter word. It is strange to me that as I read a lot of Christian books and listen to a lot of sermons and hear a lot of people talk, you don't hear the word that often. And I don't know why. It may seem a bit archaic. It may seem harsh. It may seem preachy. But the problem is, is there is no understanding of the gospel without this word. There is certainly no salvation without this word. There is no hope of eternal life unless you respond to the command of this word. And so no matter what the reason is, it is a word that we must hear. The word is repent. Repent. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it tells us in Mark chapter 1, the first thing that Jesus said is, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning the king has come. He has come to bring in the kingdom. And what is your response to that? Repent. Acts chapter 2, he shares the gospel to thousands. What, What is our response to that? Peter simply summarizes the response in one word. Repent. Repentance is the only appropriate response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation for any individual person Without repentance, this word matters for us. And it certainly matters for us as we study Luke chapter 15. Because it's mentioned for us a couple of times and exemplified for us throughout the entire chapter. Now remember the context. It all starts in the first couple of verses in which it says that Jesus is eating 
with tax collectors and sinners, that they're drawing near to him. They, they want to be near to Jesus. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders began to grumble and complain. Why? Because here's a man who claimed to be a righteous, holy man, and yet he's eating with these sinners. They don't understand how that can be the case. They even say it in verse 2. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is their statement of condemnation against Jesus. So Jesus, hearing them and knowing what is in their heart, responds to their confusion on how God could eat with tax collectors and sinners, and he responds with three stories. But the truth is, is we know that these three stories are just one story. It even says in verse 3, so he told them this parable. Well, he tells them three parables, but he says this parable because it's all essentially the same story. The first one is of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes away. He leaves the 99, he goes and finds the one, he brings it back, he rejoices over it, he throws a party. The next was of a woman who lost one coin. She had 10, this coin was a family heirloom. She lost one, she searches everywhere, she finds it. She invites her friends, they throw a party. The last one is of a son who leaves. But eventually he's found and he comes back and everyone celebrates. They invite their friends and they, they throw a party. So every story is essentially the same. There's something lost. There's a diligent search. There's something found. And then there's a really big celebration. But there is kind of an ascending order to these parables. Every single one of them, we feel a little bit more weight. I mean, the first one is one out of a hundred sheep. So it's just sheep and then there's 99 left. But the next is one out of 10 family heirlooms. There's only nine left. And it is a family heirloom. It's irreplaceable. So it feels a little bit more weighty. But the last story gets even more personal because it's one out of two sons and it's a child that has been lost. Now, in the first two stories, they end essentially the same way. Look at what it says in verse 7. Jesus tells the story of the sheep that goes away and the search to find it, bringing it home. Then he says this, just so, meaning that story was a picture of this, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then the story of the lost coin. And then he says in verse 10, just so, meaning this story symbolizes this point right here, I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Meaning both of these stories existed to paint a picture of what happens in heaven when someone is lost, comes back, then everyone celebrates and that coming back is called repentance. Now when you get to the third story, you'll notice that the word isn't used. The word repent, which is used in the first story and the second story, is not used in the third story and the reason is this. Because that which is said explicitly in the first story and the second story is clearly exemplified without having to be stated in the third story. In other words, what you get from the story of a prodigal son is not only a picture of the love of God and his search and pursuit of the lost and a picture of the lie of the enemy which constantly tries to pull us away from the Father and not only a picture of the consequences of what it looks like to leave God but a picture of what it looks like to come back. Like, how does someone come to the Father? 
How does someone make their way back into intimacy with God? How does someone who has been distant, who has run away and made a mess of their life, how do they come back? And how does someone that hasn't quite made a mess yet, but knows that they will if they don't come home, how does that person come back? How do any of us return home? That is really the point of, of this text this morning. I told you at the beginning of our study that we're going to do seven messages on this because there's seven primary themes that are seen throughout the scripture. We've already seen three of them. God loves you, he cares about you, and he's aggressively pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. We have all believed the lie that life away from the Father is better. And we have all seen the consequences of leaving home. Uh, That always leaves us empty, it leaves us lonely, it leaves us broken. And whether you can see it in someone's life in a very open and public way or maybe just quietly internally, everyone who has left the Father feels lonely, broken, and empty. The fourth theme is that there is a way home. There is a way for us to return to the Father. And since all of us are prodigals and all of us are sinners and all of us like sheep have gone astray, it means that all of us must repent. All of us must return home. Now, returning home always begins with what it says right there in verse 17. It says, but when he came to himself, that's a great phrase. So here is the lost son who has wandered away from home because he believes life is better outside of the father's house. He has great dreams, great ambitions, but he finds himself in a very difficult circumstance, empty, alone, and broken, living with pigs, wanting to just be fed with the pods the pigs ate, but no one would give him anything. No one cared about him. And it was in that moment in which it says he came to himself. Some of your versions may say it came to his senses. That's a great way to say it. There's only one other place in all of the New Testament which this word is used in the same way. It's by the same author. It's in Acts 12, verse 11. It's a great story. Peter's been thrown in prison. And the text goes over and above to let us know that there was no way to get out of prison. He was in chains. His feet were shackled. He had a guard on his right. He had a guard on his left. He had prison bars in front of him. But it says that while he was sleeping, he saw an angel. And a bright light came upon him, and the angel touched him in the side and gave him very explicit instructions. Stand up, put your cloak on, put your shoes on, and come with me. The angel leads him out in a very supernatural way. Somehow the chains came off. The guards don't seem to notice. The prison door doesn't make any noise. He gets through all of the walls. It seems supernaturally led out of the prison. And it says that when he got out of the prison, he came to himself. He thought the entire thing had been a dream. He was already asleep, and it would seem a bit like a dream when a bright light shines upon you and an angel touches you in the side and tells you to get dressed, and mysteriously and miraculously, you now end up outside of the prison. But it wasn't a dream. He came to himself. And all of a sudden, in that moment, as he was outside of the prison, he realized that which was a dream was not a dream at all. It was reality. This is exactly what happens to the prodigal son in verse 17. He'd been living his dream. Remember, he started this story with a great dream, a dream of a better life, a dream of freedom, a dream of prosperity, a dream of what it would be like to be his own man, charting his own course, no longer wanting to live under the authority of the Father. He didn't want anyone telling him what to do. So he cashed in all that he had, all of that was his inheritance that was coming to him, and he went out and spent it all to 
fulfill his dream of a better life. But all of a sudden, he realizes the dream hasn't gone so well. It just didn't last very long, and he was left as sin always leaves us, empty, lonely, and broken. And it was in that moment, sitting with pigs, longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, that he realizes this has not ended up the way he had imagined. That's what the enemy does. He gives us these dreams. He gives us these visions of how great life is going to be without God. And he lies to us that God doesn't want good for us. And so believing the lie, we leave home and we will at some point discover the cost of being distant from the father. The prodigal feels that moment. He comes to a senses. It's like the light came on for the very first time. And all of a sudden he realizes that which he believed was a lie. And he begins to see the truth. Now, it seems that he he sees the truth in a couple of different ways. That it was in this moment, while wallowing there with the pigs, he sees the truth about himself for the very first time. You can see that in a few very important statements. Look at them with me. The first is there in verse 17. He says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish? If If you mark in your Bibles, mark that. I perish. You see, that's an important statement from the prodigal because what he realizes is that he's not actually living the dream. That life did not end up the way he wanted it to. That walking away from his father's house led him into perishing. He says, here I am and I'm, I'm perishing, I'm suffering. And he brought it on himself. Like he's not a victim. We can feel sorry for him because he was blinded by the lie of the enemy But the reality is, he chose to walk away from the Lord, and every step further from the Lord is a step into greater emptiness, loneliness, and brokenness. The very thing you hope to find as you walk away from God are the very things you will continue to lose more of. So here he is, having lost all of these things, and he realizes, wait, the consequences of my sin is that I now perish. And he begins to own his stupidity, a very important part of all of our process. I brought this upon myself, and here I am perishing. But the next thing it says in verse 18, is it says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So he not only realizes that he's perishing, he realizes he's a sinner. He doesn't say, I really made some poor choices. I made some unwise decisions. I really didn't do right by my father. I really could have done a little bit better. No, no, no. He gets to the heart of the issue in which he says this, I'm perishing. Why? Because I sinned. He called it exactly what it was. I have sinned against my father and I have sinned against God. I have willingly chosen to walk away from what I knew was right. I perish and I have sinned. He realizes for the first time he's a sinner who is perishing. But he also realizes that he's an unworthy sinner that is perishing. Look at verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's another phrase to underline. I perish, I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So these are self-revelations he's having. He is, for the very first time, seeing the truth about himself. I made a decision to walk away from the Father. The result is, is that I perish. I'm suffering. 
And it's all because of the consequences of my own sin. And now because of my decisions, I am no longer worthy to be called a son. I have hurt my father deeply. I have offended him publicly. And he recognizes in this moment for the first time, he is an unworthy sinner who is perishing. But he not only sees the reality of himself, he also sees the reality of the father. He comes to his senses. He recognizes who he is, and then he begins to recognize who the father was. Now, here's the deal. You could have sat down with the prodigal son before he ever left and said, let me tell you about your father. He's good, and he offers you so much, and you're never going to find anything better, and he wants what is best for you. Would the prodigal have listened to that? No. But here, after reaping all of the consequences of his own sinful actions, he finally begins to see the father clearly. In verse 17, he says this, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? In other words, he begins to think about home. And he says, listen, my father has not only this son that's left home, but he has all these servants. And every single one of my father's servants is eating better than I am. Like, I've got nothing. I don't have a place to live. I don't have a place to stay. I'm completely broke. I have nothing good to eat. And back home, my father's hired servants have it better than I have. And all of a sudden, he begins to realize that his father was right. And his father's house is better. And his father is good. I mean, even to his servants, he is good. He is good to all of those who are around him. He is a good and generous and kind father who was right that it's always better to stay in a relationship with the father and be home. So when he comes to his senses, He sees himself clearly. I'm an unworthy sinner who is perishing. He sees his father clearly. My father is a good and kind and benevolent father. That was right. I shouldn't have left home. He comes to himself. He he sees the truth. But what's important about the prodigal is that he not only sees the truth, he takes action. He does something about it. It's one thing to acknowledge that you've gotten yourself in a mess. I see this all the time. It's one thing to realize that you walked away from God and you're receiving the consequences of that. It's one thing to even realize you're empty, you're broken, you're lost, all of that. It's another thing to actually do something about it. We all know people who've made a mess of their lives and they know they've made a mess of their lives. They're just not doing anything to fix it. What does he do? Well, look at what it says. He says, I will arise, verse 18, and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, he he makes a decision. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna start walking and I'm gonna walk away from this life And I'm going to walk back to my father's house, this walk that seems to be a walk of shame, this humbling walk, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk. And he even begins to practice his speech. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going to see him and here's what I'm going to say before he says anything. Father, I know, I know what I've done. I know I've sinned and I'm not worthy to be your son, but here's the deal I'm going to make with you. I don't even want to be your son. That's okay. 
I just I would just like to be your servant because being your servant is is better than being my own master over here. So Father, here's the deal: we're gonna if you just let me be my serve your servant, at least I have a place to stay and, and something to eat. So he plans it out, and then look at what it says in verse twenty. And he arose and came to his father. In other words, he not only made a plan, he not only practiced his speech, he got up and did something about it. He didn't just wish things were different. He made a plan, he took action. He arose and came to his father. He saw the truth, he left his sin, and he started back home. Now listen, I know that word repentance may seem religious, it may seem preachy, It could be that you haven't been to church in a while and you just knew this is what you were going to hear when you got here. Repent, repent, repent. Let me just say this to you. Whatever is in your mind about the word repentance, let me make sure this is what you think about. Repentance is seeing the truth, leaving your sin, and making your way back to the Father. Now, it is, it is hard to define in some ways. I worked really hard on this this week because repentance really is a change of mind, but it's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. Someone that changes their mind about sin but doesn't make their way back to the Father doesn't really believe what they think. If the prodigal would have said, yes, I believe now because of my experience that sin is bad and the Father is better, but he stays there in his sin, does he really believe it? No. Repentance is changing what you think about sin and yourself, changing what you think about the goodness and kindness of the Father, and then acting upon that by leaving your sin and beginning a journey back home. Repentance is simply believing the truth, leaving your sin, and returning to the Father. And remember what we've said from the beginning. Sin is not just about breaking the rules. Sin is about leaving your relationship with God. You can't be saved by keeping all the rules. And if sin is not just breaking the rules, but it's leaving a relationship, then repentance is not just obeying the rules. Repentance is coming back into intimacy with God. Why? Because you believe he's better. It's coming to the place in which you believe the truth. Repentance is an act of faith. My life is a mess. It's getting worse. Sin leads to perishing. Even if I haven't fully seen it, I believe it because God said it. So what will I do? I will get up and move because I believe that Jesus is better. And then we leave our sin. Why? Because we believe it causes more loneliness and more misery. And it's never done anything good for any of us. And then we begin to make our way back to intimacy with God. And listen, when Jesus shows up and he simply says this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You know what he's saying? He's saying this. I want a relationship with you. But you left. You disobeyed. You chose to walk away from me. But I am inviting you to come back, to leave your sin, to believe the truth that I alone can give you life, and to come back into intimacy with me. What he's saying when he says repent is believe the truth about sin, that it leads to greater misery. I love that little line there where he says, I perish, because it reminds me of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not 
whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, meaning this, everyone without Jesus perishes. Know this, life without Jesus is more perishing in this life and in the life to come. But Jesus came so you didn't have to perish. God, in his constant love and care and pursuit of sinners, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save you from a life of perishing that you are in because of your own decision to walk away from God. So even though we made the decision to walk away from God, we're the reason we're in this mess in the first place. God does not hold that over our heads. He simply sends his son, Jesus Christ, to take up on himself our sin so that we might be brought into a relationship with him even though we're the ones that left in the first place. And we come to a moment in which we come to our senses and we believe that my life is a mess and Jesus is better. You know, the reason I started our time this morning by reading Psalm 84 is because about six months ago when I first decided I was going to preach the prodigal son and I began to start reading it over and over and over and over again, I kept thinking about Psalm 84.10, which simply says this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the courts of the Lord than live in the tent of wickedness. You know what the prodigal says? He comes to a place and says this, I'd rather be a servant at my father's house than my own master. Better is one day in the presence of the Lord. Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. Why? Because being a doorkeeper in God's house is better than any other life imaginable. But the most miraculous thing is God is not inviting you to be a doorkeeper. He's inviting you in to be a child. Next week, we'll talk about that. We see the truth about ourselves, and then what do we do? Well, we act. I heard someone say one time that repentance always has a plan. We confess our sin. We humble ourselves. We abandon our sin. We begin the process of moving back toward the Father. Think about Mark chapter 1, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then, knowing we're probably not going to understand what that means... He immediately talks about seeing Simon and Andrew fishing. And he says, follow me. And it says this, immediately they left their nets and they begin to follow Jesus. So here's what Mark does. He says, here's what Jesus preached, repent. Well, okay, great. Mark, that sounds great. What does that mean? It looks like this. It looks like hearing the call of Jesus, believing that he's better, leaving your sin and going to embrace life with Jesus. That's what repentance looks like. That's what salvation looks like. Last night, sitting with my two youngest girls and putting them to bed, we were reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, and uh, we began to talk about the gospel, reading the story of Noah, and how uh, really the ark is a picture of Christ who delivers us and saves us from death. And one of my daughters said this. I said, Dad, what would happen if, if someone tried to trick God? And they, they prayed a prayer that said they believed in God, but they never really changed their life. And I said, that's exactly what a lot of people have done. They've prayed a prayer. They've somehow said they believe the truth, but if they never left their sin and embraced Jesus, they didn't believe the truth. It's not simply enough to believe the facts about Jesus. You must believe the facts and repent of your sin by turning from them and embracing the life of Jesus. And that is the only way to be a Christian. One of the things I'm so thankful for when I think about the story of the prodigal son is that it really teaches us not only the importance of repentance and 
paints this picture of repentance, it, it really gives us some truths about repentance that we don't often think about. Let me quickly, let me encourage you to write these down. It, it reminds us that repentance is always a gracious gift. Write that down. You have to know this. Repentance is always a gracious gift. Conviction of sin, clarity about the truth, awareness of what God has done about who I am and who God is, all that is a gift of God. Listen, when it says he came to his senses, that is a supernatural work of God. Only God can make you come to your senses. I just think about what it would have been like if we sat down with the prodigal before he left home and said, listen, let me tell you the truth about yourself and sin and about God. He would have left anyway. It was already in his heart to leave. And even if you went to the pigsty, which many of you have done with a prodigal, and said, don't you see the reality of your life without Christ, sometimes they still don't believe. Why? Because only God can bring you to your senses. It's a gift. I have met with hundreds of families with prodigal children. And one of the things they'll often say is that they have to come to the point where they're willing to pray the hardest prayer imaginable. And if you're a parent with a prodigal, you're gonna know exactly what I'm gonna say. The prayer is this. God, do whatever it takes to bring them back. Now, that prayer is hard because you know it might take this. It might take losing everything and find yourself in a pigsty absolutely penniless, having lost everything in order for him to come to his senses. But that prayer also shows us that it's only God who could do it. Because there's a lot of people wallowing in loneliness and desperation and brokenness and sin, but they're still not ready to come to Jesus. It's a gracious gift of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is the kindness of God. Listen, this morning, if you see the reality of your sin, if you see the brokenness of your life, if you feel the loneliness and the separation from God, that is a gift of God. The very fact that God has stirred in your heart is a gift of kindness. What God is saying to you is this. You don't have to live that way. He's inviting you to come home. It's always a gracious gift. This also reminds us that repentance is a, is a practical demand. It's a gracious gift. Write this down. It is a practical demand. Repentance is a call to action. It's an invitation. It says, now... If you recognize, if you come to your senses, then you have to do something. You have to get up. You have to turn from your sin and begin to embrace a life of Jesus Christ. If a person says they believe the truth, but they never leave their sin, then they don't believe the truth. I don't know, I don't know how it happened. But somehow in our belief system, we have come to think that what it takes to be a Christian is we just pray a prayer. Like we just come to a place and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for my sin. Well, that's absolutely essential. That's the part of belief. We have to believe that I deserve hell, but Jesus died to take my hell. And his death is sufficient for the payment of my sins. And I can be free because of that. And you don't have to do anything else but to trust in Jesus Christ. But the evidence of that truth is that you do not remain in your sin. You get up, you leave your sin, and you begin a life of trying to embrace Christ. It's the first of many decisions 
It is a practical demand that is calling you to do something, to leave your sin and follow Christ. It's a gracious gift. It's a practical demand. The last thing is this. It is a continual action. It's a continual action. Another one of the great mysteries to me is how we have somehow taken all of these things in our Christian life that were meant to be ongoing things and made them into one-time things. Well, yeah, I already repented. Like, some of you have already, you shut me off like 20 minutes ago because you're saying, I already did that. Like, this is great. I'm really hoping those who hear this message who haven't repented, repent. But I did that. Listen, listen. You have a misunderstanding of repentance if you're saying, I did that. It begins with an initial decision, but we continue in a life of repentance. As long as you still sin, you must continue to repent. Because every time we wander away from the Father, what we've done in that moment is chosen to believe that something is better. And in that moment, what do we do? First John 1, 9, we confess it, we repent of it, we turn back, and we begin to embrace the Father again. This is the life of the believer. We live by faith, and part of faith is believing that the Father is constantly welcoming me back if I will acknowledge my sin, humble myself, and come back to him. Martin Luther in 1517 took his 95 theses and nailed them on a door, 95 things that he had discovered against the Catholic Church. And let me tell you how he discovered them. This is crazy. He read And all of a sudden he realized, wait a minute, this is not, this is not the way it is. And you know, the number one thing he discovered from the Bible, it is the number one thing on his list. It is this, when our Lord and master said, repent, he intended that the entire life of the believer be repentance. But we just keep repenting. Why? Because we keep sinning. We constantly struggle. Jesus is constantly inviting us home. This is a daily part of our life. What that means is this. Today, if God is stirring in your heart and you're sensing that maybe you're coming to your senses, you're starting to see things clearly, God is exposing an area of sin and you know it's bringing misery and you want to get out of it and leave it and you're believing that Jesus is better, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, repent. Take some steps away from sin and back toward the Father. Humble yourself, confess your sin, and come back to Him. And can I just say this? The only reason that there's any hope in that, as we will talk about next week, is the confidence and in the same way the prodigal made his way back home and found a father that ran to embrace him and kiss him. So it is that every single time you repent, what you find is a father that is welcoming you home. The one who invited you, the one who is initiating that life in you is the one that is ready to welcome you right now. What are you waiting for? Just come home. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.